Thank you, brethren. Thank you, Mark, for that uh, opportunity to get more acquainted with what's going on down at Key West. Uh, the Eccles took me down there a few years ago, and uh, it's amazing to see that that testimony, I understand, I think Randy Beers told me that it's uh, the oldest testimony in South Florida. It goes back to the 1880s. So we're thankful to see that the Lord's put it on your hearts and the hearts of your family to seek to build up the work that's going on there. We want to come back to Acts chapter 1. In the first 11 verses, the Luke, in a very concise, compact way, has described some really marvelous truths, some very important facts, some very important events that are the basis of the early church and therefore our understanding of church truth as the Bible teaches it. One, one particular thing I did not uh, have opportunity to mention uh, last night when we were talking in chapter 1. I just want to make mention of this in verse 4 of chapter 1. You notice our Lord, in a, in a very maybe unassuming way, mentions the Trinity. He mentions the work of each of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. You notice that? He, he said, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, so the Father, you've heard from me, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit is that promise in verse 5. And so, while we don't see maybe the word Trinity mentioned in the Bible, directly, we see the teaching is there. And this would be one of the places of many where even in one verse sometimes all three persons in the Godhead are mentioned. And of course this is New Testament truth. This wasn't as clear in the Old Testament as it has become now for us. And we accept it and we delight in it. We delight in making those distinctions in our own mind, in our own worship of God, and acknowledging the different roles and responsibilities in the Godhead. And then God says, and I have different roles and responsibilities in the assembly, in the church too. And each one has their own function there. And he has a pattern and an order that he establishes for that too, doesn't he? But then beginning in verse 12, all the way through the end of the chapter, he deals with another matter, and, and this is an essential matter to deal with. Some have called it the problem of Judas. What do we do with, with Judas? I've described this message as from privilege to perdition. From the privileged position that Judas had to the place of perdition where he ended up. So let's read verses 12 to 26 together. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, really right across the Kidron Valley. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, Luke 
adds by parenthesis altogether, the number of the names was about a hundred and twenty. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from, from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed too, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. A kind of difficult incident to work through. But as I mentioned earlier, Luke clearly says in chapter 6, where here he says the 11, and he mentions the 11 in Luke 24, the last chapter of his gospel. In chapter 6, verse 2, he'll call them the 12. And so Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes Matthias as a genuine replacement for Judas. Paul would be saved after chapter 6 in chapter 9. So Paul is not Judas's replacement. According to the Holy Spirit, he may be in the hearts of some of us. We'd like to see that, but I'm going to submit to the Holy Spirit on that one. And Paul himself even says in 1 Corinthians 15, he numbers, he calls the 12, and then he says, last of all, I was added as an apostle. So he puts himself outside the list of the twelve. So just setting that aside, and of course we already mentioned too, for some, the casting of lots, I've heard some, I'm surprised that a genuine Christian would say this, but I've heard some genuine Christians say, well, isn't that gambling? And anyone that familiarity with the Old Testament would tell us that the casting of lots was the standard way under the Old Covenant. That's how Joshua divided the land. In the book of Joshua, that's how the priests divided their various divisions in the book of First Chronicles. And so we see all the way through their history that the casting, I think it's even in the book of Deuteronomy, right? That the casting of lots, or is that in Proverbs? That the Lord guides in that. So this was a method that amongst Jewish disciples would have been well-known, well-accepted, normal custom that they do here. Now what I'm, I want to note Three things first in, in how Luke presents this. First of all, he emphasizes the unity 
of this group of believers in verses 12 to 14, which is really special and something that Luke continues to emphasize all the way through the book of Acts, this idea of being together in one accord. You notice he says they returned to Jerusalem in verse 12 from where they had seen the Lord ascended on Mount Olives. He, he lists them. They're in the upper room where they had been for the celebrating of the first Lord's Supper and the last Passover. And he tells us in verse 14, they all continued with one accord together. And what were they doing? In prayer and supplication. And what were they praying for? Well, the Lord had told them in earlier part of the book of Acts, right? That they were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father comes in the beginning of chapter 2. So this is an event that occurs in those 10 days from the 40th to the 50th day. As I mentioned last night, I'll mention again with this group, a little bit different group here tonight, Gary reminded me that this Sunday, I believe I'm right, Gary, will be the 50th day after Easter this year. So if you want to kind of put a perspective, this today, tonight, we'd be in the midst of that week between the 40th and the 50th day, kind of thinking about what time has transpired since Easter of this year. Forty days, the Lord working with them, instructing showing them His glorified body. And then He leaves them in the ascension, and for ten days, they're in prayer and supplication alone. The Holy Spirit would baptize them into the body of Christ in the 50th day when the Pentecost festival was fully come. When, when the, what all the Pentecost festival portrayed in the Old Testament was fully realized. The Tabernacles Festival won't be fully realized until the end of the Tribulation period. But this particular festival is realized here. And so they're in prayer. What are they praying for? Well, apparently the Lord had given them some instructions. And I believe that a good case can be made for the fact that this event of dealing with Judas's replacement is something that the Lord instructed at least Peter, if not the entire group, this was something I want you to take care of before Pentecost. You say, well, that's an argument from silence. Well, partly it's an argument from silence because the Lord, we don't have a word from the Lord specifically telling them that, right? But we also, we do have Luke recording this event before Pentecost and after the ascension. So it seems like it's an event that the Lord wanted them to deal with and He wanted them to deal with it after He was gone. Which to me just tells another remarkable aspect of the grace of our Lord. Because the Lord could, could have shown a vengeful kind of attitude toward Judas. Don't forget, Judas betrayed him. But he said, no, that you all take care of that one. And of course, they would need that preparation because in just a few years after this event, they would have to deal with two other betrayers, right? In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who were numbered with the group and turned out to be lying to the Holy Spirit, Peter charges them with, right? So it reminds us not only the unity of the testimony of the Lord's people that we see here, but also the purity 
of that testimony. The purity of us as believers individually and the purity corporately that when even just one of us in a local testimony is not judging sin in our lives, it defiles the whole testimony. That is, it weakens the testimony. And if you're in spiritual conflict, like Brother was saying, and, and there's spiritual warfare going on, you don't want to be in a weakened kind of a condition. You want to be strong in the Lord and strong in the Holy Spirit. But you're not going to be strong in the Lord and the Holy Spirit if we're ignoring and not judging sin in our life that we know about. And so that's an important matter to deal with. It's, it's a difficult matter, admittedly. But it's important that it be dealt with and that it be dealt with scripturally and in love. And so while they're together in prayer, and, and it's interesting, Luke tells us the number, and it, it's interesting as he, how he describes it. You notice he says, he could have said that in a lot of different ways. The group gathered there was 120 people. Or the number of people that gathered was 120. But he specifically, I like the way he puts it, the number of the names was about 120. Now, he had just listed some names there in verse 13. What's the significance of that? Well, names mean individuals. It's personal, isn't it? Each one of us has a personal name. And in the church, the personality of each individual, reflected sometimes in their name, is very important to Christ and to God. I like that. There's a family aspect to that. You know, when, when we gather together as a family, I'm talking about in our individual families, you know, imagine, have you ever gotten a card where it's just addressed, you know, no name, not dear so-and-so, not, nothing personal, just a card and, and nothing on the bottom? I usually just throw those cards away. I don't even look at who they came from because it looks like there, there really wasn't, the, the heart wasn't really in it. We have names. God knows us by name. We know each other by name. And that personal aspect of our fellowship is very important. And by the way, along with that, we want to be careful not to make fun of any names that we maybe aren't used to or aren't happy with. We recognize the importance of each individual. They got named that. They didn't choose it. Their parents did. And we want to reflect our appreciation of each individual. So they're gathered together there in the upper room. And then Peter stands up in verse 16. And the first matter he deals with in verse 16 down through 20 is the matter of Judas. And then in verses 21 to 26, the replacement of Judas. Now to show the importance of this, he validates this whole event from two Old Testament scriptures, doesn't he? But he addresses it this way in verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture... That's the Word of God. 
had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. It's interesting, Peter. It's amazing how much he's understood here and how much he's grown. He recognizes that David wrote these Psalms, but it was the Holy Spirit speaking them through David. Now, David says that in Second Samuel 23, right? Or Second Samuel 24. The sweet psalmist of Israel. He said, I spoke by the Holy Spirit. Peter affirms that. And he spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now think about it this way. Why this is such an important matter to deal with. As far as the people of Jerusalem, in the immediate community in which they were, as far as they were concerned, Judas was one of the apostles, wasn't he? And as far as they understood, the Lord Jesus picked him and designated him as an apostle, just as he did the other eleven. That's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 10. He had many disciples at that point, but he sets apart twelve of them. And Judas is one of those. And so in the minds of the populace, they say, well, wait a minute. He claims to be Messiah. He claims to be God in the flesh. He picks Judas... And he doesn't know if he's God. He doesn't know that Judas is going to betray him. He doesn't know. Why didn't he pick Matthias in the first place? He doesn't know that Judas is going to fail him. Well, what kind of a Messiah is that? And for us, it might be sometimes the same response we get when we deal with the problem of Judas. The situation is this. And to me, I'm going to try not to say this with tears, but to me this is one of the amazing characteristics of Jesus Christ in His humbling Himself. That He would even humble Himself to this. In other words, the Lord Jesus walked into this hornet's nest willfully for you and me. He knew Judas was going to betray him. He knows these scriptures. He knows that Judas is going to fulfill them. He knows that Judas is going to betray him even with a kiss. It wasn't a holy kiss given what we were talking about Sunday night, was it? And yet he willingly does this in obedience to the Father. Contrast that with the obedience to the first man, Adam. What did the first man, Adam, do? He exalted himself and ignored the command of the Father. The Father said for him to do really what was a pretty simple command. And he believed the devil and the taunt of the devil. Oh, you do, he doesn't want your best interests. Do this and you'll be like God. You'll know all things. Yeah, you're right, devil, said Adam and Eve. But Adam was given the command before Eve and he was supposed to be protecting Eve. So in many respects, and Romans 5 makes it clear, sin came into the world, not through Eve, through Adam. Through one man, sin came into the world, see. Adam was responsible. And that's why Paul makes that enormous contrast in Romans 5 between Adam's disobedience that brought sin and death and our Lord Jesus' perfect obedience that brought grace and life. 
Which one do you want to be in? I've already made up my mind. I used to be in Adam. I was in Adam till I was 26 years old. And, and I didn't mind being in Adam up until the point the Lord showed me in the gospel what Adam's people, where they're going to end up. And He showed me an alternative. The gift of His Son. It wasn't a hard choice then once I understood the gospel. And so our Lord willfully did this. You see why the replacement of Judas is so important here? Because as Peter says, it became known in verse 19 to all those dwelling in Jerusalem what had happened to Judas. It became known. In other words, they knew he was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Somehow that word had already gotten out just in 40-something days. That he had betrayed him. And then they knew about what happened to him. Of course, Matthew tells us he went with the object in mind of hanging himself. But the Lord... I don't know if the, the branch broke or the rope broke. But he must have been over the area of Jerusalem where the valley of Ben-Hinnom is because that area is still designated Akeldama to this day. And the branch broke or whatever he was using to hang himself and he falls, Peter says, and he purposely tells us what God thinks of Judas's betrayal. It's interesting. when I, you, know, you see this word headlong in the King James and in, they still used it in the New King James. And I thought, what in the world does that word mean in the original? And I looked it up in Vines. You know what that word really how it could be translated? Face first into the rock. Now when you're hanging yourself, if the branch breaks or the rope breaks, which way are you going to land first? Feet first, right? <laughs> but somehow it got turned around and he went and I guess turned his head to see where he was headed. And not only that, that word, it burst open in the middle. That word translated, there was a cracking sound. I don't know if the spinal cord broke in half and broke open his midsection and all his entrails came out. And that's why there was so much blood. Must have been a pretty awful sight. Peter says, all Jerusalem knows this. This isn't a secret. <laughs> and all Jerusalem wonders about Jesus of Nazareth. Did he know this? Why did he let this happen? And then Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms. He quotes two Psalms here. Psalm 109 and Psalm 69. Now, if you will, hold your finger here. And go back to the book of Psalms. First to Psalm 69. Now we could spend a lot of time thinking about this in meditation because, of course, I think most of you know that Psalm 69 and Psalm 22 are both the most clearly the Psalms of the crucifixion. But... Not, it doesn't just end with the crucifixion. They predict His crucifixion. The words quoted in this psalm and Psalm 22 are quoted in the context of the crucifixion. So we know that. 
It's validated in many ways. But the verse that, that Peter quotes here in Psalm 69 is verse 25. Let their dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in their tents. And if you fit that into the context, what he's talking about here, he's talking about those... Now, David went through this experience in a certain extent himself, not crucifixion, but betrayal, right? Particularly in the Absalom revolt when his own son rebelled against him. He says in verse 20, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity, but there was none. Can you imagine? This is how our Lord Jesus felt on the cross. I look for someone to take pity, and there was nobody. Nobody was showing pity on Him. And He knew this before He ever let Judas come in and arrest Him, right? Because He knows all the Scriptures, and He knows this Scripture has to be fulfilled. But Psalm 69 also passes judgment on those that are opposers to God, doesn't it? It says, let their dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in their tents. That is, no posterity, no continuing presence and testimony in this world. Now, it's fascinating. I think most of you know that Psalm 68, the psalm immediately preceding this, is a psalm of the millennial kingdom. Very important psalm. One verse in this psalm is quoted by Paul in Ephesians 4 regarding church ministry and the ministry of certain gifted individuals given to the church, and he validates it from Psalm 68. But I would submit to you, and I don't have time to prove it tonight, that really beginning in verse six, uh, Psalm 65, that Psalm 65, 66, 67, 68, all are looking ahead to the millennial kingdom, and the things that David sees there. And then you come to Psalm 69, and it's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? Because you can't have the kingdom without Psalm 69. You can't, the, the kingdom that's announced in 65, 66, 67, 68 will never happen without the cross in 69. I don't think that's just an accident. But then in Psalm 109, another prophecy that David makes, Psalm of David. In Psalm 109, this particular psalm, he quotes one verse. Psalm 109, verse 8, Let another take his office, let his days be few, and let another take his office. Or, technically, his overseership. Let another take his place of privilege and responsibility. See? In other words, none of us can think, well, God needs me so bad. He has to use me. None of us can think that. God always has a replacement ready for us if we choose to betray Him. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? In other words, beloved, there's a vulnerability here, isn't there? Because any one of us in this room can be Judas to some extent. Not in the perdition sense, but in the betrayal sense. Any one of us, he, we have the same heart from Adam that he had. Any one of us is capable of betraying our Lord. Do you think our Lord suffered enough in his betrayal of Judas? Or do you think he needs some more of that kind of pain? 
I think he got enough, didn't he? You know, over there are two other psalms, very quickly. Psalm 41, verse 9, it's quoted in another place in the New Testament with regard to Judas. Even my own familiar friend to whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And, of course, David speaking this about his friend, his close advisor, Ahithophel, kind of his Karl Rove, like Karl Rove was to President Bush. Closely trusted advisor, Ahithophel lines up with Absalom and turns on his friend, David. And the idea of lifting up the heel is the idea of, I've always wondered that expression. What does he mean, lifting up the heel? We think when we kick, the toe goes first, right? He's lifting up the heel like this to trip. You know how somebody's going by and you do this to surprise them and trip them? Kind of a cruel thing to do, isn't it? In other words, the whole element of surprise attack is part of this betrayal. And that's what it was for Ahithophel, and that's what it was for Judas, wasn't it? And then, lastly, over in Psalm 55, another reference to Ahithophel and Judas. And it's a, it's a, all of these psalms really pour out uh, the heart with regard to the heart of both David and our Lord, what they endured. Verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Remember Psalm 69? The reproaches that I suffered were reproaches against God, the Lord Jesus says. It is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. It's a lot easier, beloved, to bear reproach from an enemy than from a close friend, isn't it? I could bear it then. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Think of Adam. Adam exalted himself against his friend. The Lord used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. Adam chose to lift up his heel against the Lord, didn't he? Then I could hide from him, but it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Wow. So you get kind of a feel from those four psalms, don't you? But Peter is led by the Holy Spirit, and I believe, very likely, the Lord instructed Peter himself about these psalms because of what Luke tells us in 2444 of his gospel, right? When he instructed him from the psalms, the prophets, and the law of Moses. The Lord himself, either the Lord himself verbally told Peter this, or the Holy Spirit communicated to him either way. It's God helping him to see it, right? There's no way that we would have, I think, on our own, even as Christians, knowing the event of the cross and the crucifixion and the betrayal, would be able to link these psalms. Aren't you glad the Lord recorded these things? It helps us to see. But what does it tell us about the sovereignty of God too, doesn't it? God wasn't caught by surprise in all of this, was He? The Lord Jesus wasn't caught by surprise, mind you. He doesn't need your sympathy. He doesn't need my sympathy. When we come to the Lord's Supper, let's not, I'm not saying we've ever done it here, but sometimes I've been in places where, you know, someone says, you know, I just, I just want to sympathize with your suffering. We can't sympathize with His suffering. We can't even begin to enter into it. 
And He doesn't want that. He wants our worship. He wants our submission. He wants our surrender. He wants our love. What kind of thing? It's condescending for us to sympathize with the Lord. We can't sympathize. We can't even begin to enter into His sufferings. We would be consumed by those sufferings. We can't even handle the little bit of pain that we suffer down here. Complain and, and, and move around. And, and so He says... Therefore, of these men, verse 21, that have accompanied us, and, and this is insightful too. Did you know? Did you know that the twelve weren't the only ones from the time of the John the Baptist all the way through the upper room? I mean, they're, they're the ones focused upon, right? In the Gospels? But Peter tells us here that of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Okay? They were always with the twelve and the Lord Jesus, beginning from, the, and I, I would have put in here, maybe beginning from the ascension. <laughs> or from the crucifixion. No, beginning from the baptism of John. That's the inauguration of our Lord's public ministry. God knew Judas was going to fail, and God was already had His replacement in the wings. Have you ever been to jury selection? And they had 12 jurors that they need to select, right? And they always select at least 14 alternates, they call them. You know why they do that? And the Lord had alternates, at least two of them. They're named here, Justice and Matthias. And they were there the entire time, heard all the teaching, saw all the miracles. They were just as authentic as apostles as the rest of them. You see what Peter's doing here? What does that tell us about the Lord? That tells us that, first of all, our Lord was not caught by surprise. Our Lord was preparing things ahead of time. And He was not nervous about this whole event. And He recognized that before the Holy Spirit fell upon them, there needed to be a company of 12 of them. Because He began with 12, and He's going to finish with 12. And that was a testimony to all who were in Jerusalem, to all the Jews in Judea who wondered then, how could these things happen? But there's a wonderful spiritual lesson in that too for us. If we think we can take advantage of the grace of God and do whatever we want with regard to sin, especially if we're in a position of high authority and responsibility in the church, the Lord can do the same thing with us. He, he, he has a replacement in the wings. Be no problem at all. See, the Lord is always thinking ahead. The Lord knows our weaknesses and our vulnerability. What did 1 Corinthians 10 tell us? If you think you stand, do you think you can sit over here? Yeah, Judas, that was a terrible thing to do. Take heed, lest ye fall like him. Peter says, he went to his own place. The Lord Jesus says in John 17, He's the son of perdition. Perdition means eternal condemnation. He went to His own place. And yet, Judas is fully responsible for his decision. He made his own decision. He chose to do this. And this is where human responsibility and the sovereignty of God come, to, come together. And the Bible doesn't reconcile them. And we can't reconcile them. And God doesn't ask us to, and we don't need to. But the fact still remains. 
that the testimony was completed again. The breach was healed. And so we see then the danger of sin and pride. That was really what got Judas, wasn't it? And so just to close out, uh, sorry I ran over a little. Four things to keep in mind to protect us. To protect us from sin and pride. Because that's part of why this has been recorded. These things have been recorded for our learning, haven't they? When we realize, if you know your own heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's so wicked. Who can know it? You know, like you know, I hear this program, the, these criminal minds, you know, the behavioral analysis unit that the FBI, the BAU they talk about, that the FBI has. And they think that they can plumb the depths of man's behavioral evils and not be contaminated by it? As a man thinks in his heart, so he is, says the Bible. If you're exposing yourself to those kinds of evils, beloved, you are becoming like them. If you continue to analyze how the criminal mind thinks, you will have a criminal mind. That's just how our minds work. It's that dangerous. So that's why the first protection is hiding God's Word in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. Psalm 119. You know, we're not doing that. I mean, God bless those that, that are in a B, uh, what do you call that, a quotation where they... Bible B. We're not doing it just for a Bible B. We, we love those that do it for the Bible B and we want them to succeed. But this is a matter of life and death, isn't it? We're quoting and hiding God's Word in our hearts because we don't want to fail Him because we've got a heart just like Judas that could fail Him, that could lead people to take away from His glory. That's what Judas was doing. Sobering, isn't it? You see why this needed to be at the beginning of church history? So that's the first thing, hiding God's Word. Secondly, John, John Owen the Puritan put it like this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Uses the picture of Samuel with Agag. Remember, Saul was told to defeat the Amalekites. Saul decided to spare Agag. And apparently he spared a few others because several hundred years later in the book of Esther we find out there are still followers, Haman the Agagite. See, if Saul had just done the mission God sent him to do, he said, well, no, I can compromise on this one little area. I can let this part, this little sin dwell in my life and in my mind and in my heart. Nobody knows about it, but just me and God. It'll get you. It'll get you. It'll get you at the most inconvenient moment. Numbers 32:23 says... Be sure your sin will find you out. That, that's been a sobering verse. I had a friend of mine, he, he thought he had escaped it all. You know, he's living a double life. And the other night I heard he, he was coming home from being out with some friends and had a few drinks and, and he accidentally got off the road into a ditch. Just made a wrong turn, he said. I haven't talked to him. But it just so happened a police car, who they never see police cars on that little country road, and one just happened to come by, and guess what? He smelled, I guess, his breath, took him in. He was in an orange jumpsuit the next morning before the judge with a DUI. Just one little foolish thing, and a whole testimony is ruined. 
a whole testimony. One bad decision. One night. And you could fill that in with lots of other examples too. Because God sees it. He says, be sure. He doesn't say you'll find your sin out. He said, your sin will find you out. In other words, it'll expose you. Remember how he says to the apostles in Matthew 10, you do this in the, in the, in the quiet place, in the secret place, I'm going to shout it from the housetops. Don't live a double life. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James chapter 1, right? A double-minded man, always unstable, like the tossing sea. Thirdly, confess and forsake sin that God reveals to us quickly. When he reveals known sin, and you've got to have a quiet place in your heart and in, in your house or your place of residence to do this. But when he brings it to your heart, and he'll do it sometimes when we're working, fixing a toilet or, or fixing a bicycle or, or changing a flat or whatever it is, he'll put on our hearts something, oh man, I hadn't seen that before. Confess it quickly, right? 1 John 1.9 and then fourthly, seek the protection of community, the church community, brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know if we can make a strong case for it from the scripture record, but it appears that Judas was a loner. He was a treasurer, and, and he kind of had his own deal. And that's always dangerous. We need accountability from one another. I've got four accountability partners that, that know what I'm doing, that I talk to on a regular basis, that I get counsel from. They're not all in one location so that I can get the diversity of the cultures in their surroundings. And, and, and you have them too. But this, this community right here, the protection of community. One thing that Satan does when, we, when we're kind of playing around with sin, he puts in our heart... Oh, don't go, be, don't go be around the Christians. You'll be embarrassed. And that's the, that's the worst thing you can do. The place we need to be the most is around the Christians then. Because we sanctify one another. And I hope we do it lovingly. <laughs> that's what community is, isn't it? We don't shoot our wounded, I hope. We kind of have a reputation for that around the country. Friends of mine that are pastors in Bible churches tell me, yeah, we know about the Plymouth Brethren. They're the ones that shoot their wounded. And we end up with them in our meetings. So we don't want to be like that. We want to help. We want to edify. We want to build up. There's a process to the discipline that the Lord brings in, and He gives us instruction in that. And sometimes we have to turn someone over to the evil one like 1 Corinthians 5 describes. But it's not something we rush into or are happy to do. And not until after we've exhausted every possibility to reach out. My, if we get a reputation for being porcupines, you know, the closer we get, the more we stick each other, there aren't going to be many people in our community that are going to want to be a part of this fellowship. But at the same time, we, do want to, we don't want to go to the other extreme and be so tolerant of sin that we don't have a purity in our testimony anymore. So you see the balance in that? The purity is important too. It's an important passage, isn't it? 
I mean, sometimes I know for a long time I rushed into chapter 2 because it's so exciting and I skipped over this part. Of, I mean, up through the ascension, sure, I wanted to read about that up through the ascension, but then this part of Judas, and I said, how does this fit in? <laughs> it fits in in a very important way, doesn't it? So maybe one of the brothers could close in prayer. We are thankful. Sorry again for running over, but uh, good to have all of you out tonight. One of the brothers closing prayer.